bald head with Aldo sneakers Catch me on the corner probably reading a reader To see what goes on, I'm so SoCal To another level, I'm most definitely Oesco So I don't like dudes who do gang banging Welcome to Cuyamaca Conversations. My name is Taylor Smith. I'm the chair of the Performing Arts Department at Cuyamaca College. We started today's episode with an excerpt from the song Seven on the Mookie by Parker Meridian. Today, my guest is Nathan Hubbard, who plays drums in the Parker Meridian. It took me a while to get this episode edited. And in the meantime, between recording it and today, the 2020 San Diego Music Awards happened, and Nathan won not one, but two Album of the Year awards. Uh, his, the band he is in, the Parker Meridian, won Hip Hop Album of the Year, and Nathan's trio, the Nathan Hubbard trio, won Jazz Album of the Year for the 2020 awards. So, given the delay in releasing this episode, we did not at all get a chance to talk about that, which is too bad, because that is a pretty monumental achievement of his. Nevertheless, here is my conversation with Nathan Hubbard. Mr. Nathan Hubbard, welcome. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you. Well, it's good to see anybody these days. (laughs) Indeed. So give us a little bit of background on yourself. Tell us a bit about what you do, um, how you got started, where did you go to school, things like that. Sure. I'm a percussionist and a composer and uh, an instrument builder. Uh, I grew up in San Diego. I grew up in Encinitas, California. Uh, I went to San Diego High School, and then I went to Palomar College, where I studied with Pat Piffner. Uh, well-known educator and percussionist. He was in the chamber chamber orchestra for a long time, played in the orchestra on and off for years. Great, great educator. And then I transferred to San Diego State, where I studied with uh, Danley Mitchell, classical percussion, and uh, Rick Helzer for sort of like jazz studies, although I was a classical major. that was Those were the two people that I kind of went to state to study with. I did do a little bit uh, sort of towards the end of my tenure at State. I got involved with a group called Cosmologic, and the other three guys in that band were doctorate students at UCSD. So I spent a little bit of time at UCSD. I took some classes with George Lewis and uh, Anthony Davis and uh, sort of got involved with that scene a little bit as well. Great. Thank you. So I know that you do play in a lot of styles. You do a fair amount of genre hopping. And one of those is you, you play a lot of avant-garde yeah. stuff. Um, did you get involved with that through your connection at UCSD, since that's a bit of a hot spot for that? I was kind of, uh, I think I was always interested in it. Uh, Palomar actually has a pretty strong, um, maybe not an emphasis in that, but a background in that. David Chase was there, who was uh, at the La Jolla Symphony and Chorus at that point, And there was a pretty strong influence from UCSD, um, uh, and and a pretty like nice overview of things, you know, I, for a community college, it was kind of amazing that we were talking about Robert Ashley and people like that. And these, you know, it, it wasn't just Martin Feldman and John Cage. We were talking about things that go off the beaten path. Um, but I think originally uh, I, I, there's different things I got. Um, when I was in high school, that Meditations on Mingus recording came out, which is a Hal Wilner recording where they did Mingus tunes using uh, the Harry Parch instruments. So that was a big influence, and I realized I'd sort of already been doing that, because as a percussionist, you always modify. You know, you've got a cymbal stand, and you cut down part of it, or 
this buddy of mine traded me some drums for these electronic pads and one of them didn't work so I had to pull it open and oh I can solder this and fix this little piezo transducer and so you figure out like uh, literally that situation happened and I oh this is just a contact mic I can put this on things and amplify things so there was always sort of weird building and modifying and things and and through that um interest in that kind of music so uh, when I was at state there was a lot of studying going on me studying cage scores Stockhausen scores Zanaka scores me going uh, UCSD uh, even before I went over there to do classes I would go over there and sneak into the library and you know uh Maybe I shouldn't admit this, but Xerox scores and, <laughs> you know, take them home and study them um, uh, from all sorts of different sources, you know. So I was looking at all these things. And then clearly I, I was getting into free improvisation, uh, maybe as a, I was, I, I, throughout this whole period from high school on, I was playing jazz in coffee shops in North County. I played every coffee shop from La Costa Coffee Roasting to you know, Java Joe's and Ground Zero and Escondido and all these different places. Uh, I had a group that was playing two, three nights a week in these different coffee shops. So, and we were working through all these things and we were finding out, you know, you buy an Eric Dolphy record or you hear about this Miles Davis record or things like that. So we were just getting, just out there listening and getting involved with different things and finding out about new things. So you put all that together and there was this very like, sort of push to find new avenues and find out what was going on and you start hearing about what's going on in New York at that time or what's happening in London or these different things and all of that together kind of pushed into uh, what I was doing I, I like clearly you could say experimental music free jazz all these different things I was just kind of interested in making music that didn't really have any boundaries. so you'd mentioned that uh, you started playing gigs before you even went to college but while you were there at college, you studied classical percussion. Like, is, like, is that what you went to college to study? Yeah. Is that it, what you got a degree in? Uh, <laughs> I never got my degree. Uh, oh, I actually, okay, yeah, I showed up to Palomar and auditioned to be in the music department. And uh, they had a really good um, program where you could sign up for lessons and you had to sign into the practice rooms for a certain amount of hours per week. And uh, this whole thing worked out. So I, pl- I think I played a rudimental snare drum solo and I played, uh, you know, like a jazz like around midnight or something on the vibe, just the head. And they put me with a classical teacher. And I wasn't even sure. I th- At that point, I just wanted to study and get better. I hadn't really, and I, had, I really didn't notice the divide between like the jazz department and the classical department in schools and stuff like that. So I was studying with Pat Piffner, and pretty much all we did at Palomar was uh, classical xylophone and classical snare drum. A little bit of timpani right at the end. And then I transferred in as a junior to San Diego State, classical performance major, uh, Dan Lee. Uh, we worked on timpani a fair amount because he told me my timpani sucked. Um, but mostly what I was doing at, at pa- uh, State was practicing classical marimba, uh, a lot of these 20th century classical marimba pieces, and then playing in the jazz ensembles, and then I would go home at night and practice drum kit, or I was out doing gigs. Yeah. So kind of strange you know, mishmash of things like playing in these jazz ensembles, playing a little bit of vibraphone in the jazz ensembles, practicing classical marimba, um, playing in like, you know, these different, the wind ensemble and things like that, West African drumming ensemble, and then being out playing mostly jazz gigs. I think State was where I started doing musical theater gigs as well. 
Yeah, you know, actually, for myself, uh, I had a similar experience. When I went to college, I went on a jazz bass scholarship. Oh, really? But uh, when I got there, it was explained to me that, you know, actually, you can't major in jazz bass. In fact, we don't even have a jazz bass teacher. So I was uh, more or less forced to study classical bass. I'd never really held a bow in my hand. <laughs> I didn't have hardly any experience with this. When I was in high school, we were required to be in the concert band if you wanted to be in the jazz band. Uh, And so I played low brass, actually, not bass, as my quote-unquote classical experience. Yeah. Uh, So when I got to college, you know, this was all kind of thrown at me. This happened before, like, I found out I can't be a jazz bass major after I'd moved into the dorms. After I'd thrown a bunch of money at the college. (laughs) So I'm familiar with this idea that you sign up for one thing and then you get something else. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's it's all good because, I mean, the drum thing is always funny because it's true of San Diego State. It's true of a lot of places. You can't really get a jazz drum. You can't, it doesn't matter if it's jazz or anything. You can't get a drum degree. Drums are not taken seriously. So you have to prove yourself. And even the people that are getting a jazz performance, like undergrad, masters, whatever, they still have to play vibraphone or they have to play piano or they have to play something else. I have a a friend who actually took up the bass, great drummer, and now he's, he plays bass as well because there's no, you know, the drum kit is still not considered a real instrument in the sort of academic scenes. So, but yeah, I, th- I, I, I was always interested in all of it, you know, even going back to high school, playing in the concert band, playing in the marching bands, I was playing glockenspiel in the marching band or playing timpani in the concert band, stuff like that. So um, I think it gives a pretty nice uh, overview uh, for me, the challenge was when you got out of college, like what what to do, what to do with all of that. You know, do I keep practicing marimba six hours a day? Do I, you know, like, right. am I ever going to play timpani again? <laughs> all these kind of, you know, these kinds of questions. And yeah. that was a that was an interesting period. Um, do I keep practicing rep, you know, or do I just work on this other thing? You know, what what are all these tools that I've been putting together, and how do I use them? Nice. Yeah, so let's talk about that for a minute. Uh, you do play quite a lot now. Would you say that's primarily how you make your living, is through performing as a percussionist? Uh, yes. Or is it more like instrument building, teaching? I'm, I'm actually just... I, well, for many years I was teaching at a drum shop up in Vista, and then uh, we moved out of state, and we moved back, and uh, I have young kids. So most of my... Uh, my work has been just in performance, you know, going out and doing gigs at night, doing theater shows at night. And then just recently I've started to get back into teaching and doing a little bit of that. But at this point it's pretty much just performance. Yeah, and a lot of that is pit orchestras for, for like musical theater. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, that's really... I mean, club gigs are fun. Uh, not a lot of money, though. So, like, the main money maker that right. I do is, is theater work. Um I did, uh, I've done Moonlight uh, Amphitheater up in Vista for many years, going back maybe 16 years or something. And, um, and then, uh, since I've been, I, we were in Arizona for about two years and we moved back in 2011. And since then I've been a little bit more active, 
uh, doing Signet Theater, doing a few other theaters, uh, longer runs, eight-week runs, multiple shows a week. I did the Playhouse, a few other things. So that's kind of a whole beast in itself. Yeah. Depending on, you know, if there's two percussionists, if there's one percussionist, what the book is, what kind of show it is, showing up, nailing the show every night consistently, doing all those things. Awesome. So in addition to the the theater gigs and the more kind of traditional types of playing, you also have a, a hip-hop group that you're in, right? Yeah. And is it is it your band? No, uh, it, it well... Uh, I mean, I won't tell I the other see. guys if you want to own it yourself. <laughs> no, it, it's Parker's band. Uh, Parker Edison is a great local MC, and he hit me up. Uh, we've known each other for quite a few years. And he he hit me up to do a, um, a video. He had this single out, and he wanted to do a video, sort of a guerrilla performance thing. He had seen one of my solo percussion things in a parking structure, and he wanted to do something similar. So we set up uh, sort of illegally in this parking structure for a few hours and had three or four camera guys and, and did this live performance of the single. And then through that, he had put out an EP uh, and he wanted to do some performances. He actually just had one gig uh, on Tonight in San Diego, which was this sort of variety show that they were doing for a while. So we put together like a six minute set. It was like two of the pieces from his EP. And uh, from there, it just kind of blossomed, and we did some more gigs, and got kind of popular, and we started writing music, and put out a couple recordings. So it's turned into, uh, from very humble beginnings, it's turned into quite a thing. We won two music awards last year, and we have three records out. So it's it's turned this whole thing, um, sort of a blend of the like hip-hop um, legacy of uh, DJs and MCs, but then also using live band and that kind of technology. Yeah, that's really cool. You know, I'm not super hip to the hip-hop world. It's, it's not. I've not played any hip-hop gigs when I was growing up. I wasn't in, into that music, really. Uh, but I get the sense that live accompaniment is not the norm. Um, is Parker Meridian kind of unique in that sense, or am I am I missing the mark there? Um, it's not as maybe obvious as it uh, seems, but I think there's a history of live bands that even going back to to the beginnings, the Sugar Hill Gang. Uh, a lot of those recordings were live band. Um, uh, Doug Wimbish and uh, Keith LeBlanc and that the the band that turned into Attackhead, they're on White Lines and all these tracks, and then Stetsasonic and you have the, so you had these different bands, um, and then clearly you have the Roots, and uh, there was quite a few other bands in the '90s, hip hop groups where they would have some sort of live thing. I think at this point, you don't. If you're listening to sort of like radio hip hop or or things, it's often programmed drums. It's more of a production kind of thing. But live, you'll hear like you go see Jay Z with Beyonce or you know some sort of combination tour of that, and they'll have a live band, Tony Roaster playing drums, things like that. Um, the Beyonce Coachella thing, she had a live band as well as people on stage. So uh, I think people realize that uh, there's sort of a show aspect and watching people play is is interesting. And there's definitely a legacy of, you know, 
uh, two MCs and a DJ, or maybe one MC and a DJ, and and that's a, a very strong tradition. But the the band thing, I think, has always been there. It's uh, kind of just a question of what it, uh, how to do it. That's <laughs> you know, like how do you how do you approach that? There's actually a fair amount of uh, live groups in San Diego too, and they're all really varied. You've got bands that have multiple guitar players and you know jam out and kind of spend more time soloing and stuff you have bands that are very specifically set up just to to play these different roles so it's often just a question of of uh how you want to put that together and what you're trying to present so is hip-hop in general is that a pretty big scene here in san diego is there a lot going on I, there i think there's a very strong scene. I, I don't know if there's any huge music scene in San Diego. Um, like I, one of the strengths I think of San Diego, it used to bug me years ago that the, the music scene is kind of divided. You know, you've got these rock people and they've, they're not going to hang out with the salsa guys. And the, the jazzers all hang out a lot, but like they're not going to hang out with the folkies at Lestat's. Sometimes they do, actually. You see them playing on their records and stuff. But um, there is a, a really strong uh, scene, and there's actually multiple different scenes. The hip-hop scene, I think, is really divided by location. You got people from the southeast, you got people from East County, you got people from North County, uh, beach communities and stuff. And each of those has a different scene. If you go to the Winston's, they, um, Alo and Cypher do a monthly show called the OB Hip Hop Social in Ocean Beach. And Ocean Beach is a little bit isolated. It's a, a beach community. And it sh so there's certain people that you see there all the time, and then there's other people that maybe you wouldn't see, but you would see at the AC Lounge on a Wednesday, or maybe you'd see at the Tower Bar for the hip-hop versus punk rock. Um, so there's uh, multiple strong scenes and uh, lots of people doing really cool stuff. Yeah, that's something that I... I come across every once in a while in my class we'll have a little bit of a brainstorming session for lack of a better word and we'll we'll kind of talk about you know music in san diego and does san diego have a a scene so to speak you know some cities like say nashville or seattle have really really strong associations yeah, definitely with with styles and so i wonder like you know what does san diego have going yeah. on that is unique to itself and and maybe it's good that there isn't an overwhelming scene maybe it's bad but i, I do think that it probably makes it difficult to find yeah a place. definitely and especially in each genre i mean like san diego i think of uh you know bands like drive like jehu or three mile pilot heavy vegetable pinback things like that so that's always been a really strong thing and that does go back to sort of the seattle you know san diego was supposed to be the next seattle in the mid 90s so there's all these different bands but then you know there's a long legacy um in for san diego hip-hop there's a long legacy of uh, people like mitchie slick and big june and people like that and then also on a slightly different stream orko elohim and uh, masters of the universe milky wayne all these different people that are putting out stuff so it's something i think about because i sometimes question like is there a san diego sound or uh, you know like what what's the unifying factor um or does there need to be you know, in the folk scene, I don't know. I don't really know too much about the folk scene of other cities. So it's hard to, to define because I guess you have to define it against other cities. You know, there's definitely like, if you think in terms of like 
LA jazz community has a, a certain, I think, very specific sound that's different than San Francisco or the Bay Area scene. Uh, same thing in terms of hip hop. Same things in terms of rock in a lot of ways. Um, I, but I, it's something I'm, I'm aware of and I've been trying to figure out for years. I don't really have the answers yet. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I'm a little bit of a transplant myself. I didn't grow up here in San Diego, although I did grow up in, in Riverside County. Uh, so I'm able to see it maybe slightly differently, yeah. you know, because it's, it's not my hometown, so to speak. But I also wonder if San Diego suffers a little bit because we're basically just kind of L.A.'s annoying little brother. Uh, you know, if you're a big touring band and you can play one show in Southern California you almost certainly would choose Los Angeles over San Diego just because of reputation and the size of the market and all of that stuff. So sometimes I wonder if that has a, an adverse effect on music coming out of San Diego, is that people just simply move on from here pretty quickly. Yeah, there's definitely like a secondary market kind of thing. Um, I, w I was in Phoenix for two years and there's definitely a... S Phoenix is interesting because it's way more isolated, but it's a similar thing where a lot of major touring acts will pass up Phoenix, um, much like a lot of people will do in San Diego. Um, I thought Phoenix actually had a much more sort of honest uh, identity uh, it was it was uh, in in my opinion it was a very young identity and it hadn't really blossomed, um, and clearly you can go back you know like Meat Puppets and Sacred Reich and these different bands. Wait, is it Sacred Reich? What's that? Anyways, uh, oh Flotsam and Jetsam. Sorry, uh, you know there's these different bands that have come out of Phoenix, Gin Blossoms and things like that, and none of them really have too much to do with each other. But just going around and seeing different gigs, there was definitely like this interest in in certain sounds and uh, how people are approaching things that I thought was really interesting. Unfortunately, San Diego, like you said, being so close to LA, there is a lot of like stuff that sounds like an LA kind of a sound and um and there's a lot of people that unfortunately like you know you're not going to stay in San Diego there's a lot of great musicians that you know make a little mark and then oh they're off to college in New York or something this is especially true of Phoenix too like everyone you talk to in Phoenix the main thing is getting out of Phoenix <laughs> which is a shame because like the that town loses that identity you know if that person's not there can you imagine like if John Reese decided at some point, like, screw this town, I'm going to move to L.A., or I'm going to move to New York or something and, and make it, you know? Same thing, like, any, like, figurehead of the scene, you think, like, Gilbert, what would happen if Gilbert went to, Gilbert Castellanos, moved to New York, you know? There would all be the, all these things missing from San Diego. So, yeah, interesting. I don't have those answers of, like, how to keep those people here. That's the, I guess that's the next <laughs> right, part of that right. question. So before we started recording, you and I were joking a little bit about the the avant-garde, improvisational, kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, crazy stuff that you tend to do <laughs> from time to time with, with percussion. So I'm, I'm interested to talk yeah. a bit about that that part of your musical life. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, well, it's, okay, so uh, going back to high school. Because, I mean, there's certainly not any money in that world. <laughs> No, and there's hardly anywhere to, to perform these things. I mean, for me, it was just a, a simple thing that I, I was playing. 
and I was involved with improvisation and, uh, and uh, sort of dealing with the legacy of the jazz tradition, the free jazz tradition, the European sort of free improvisation tradition, the, all these different things. And I'm trying to put together this, you know, a, a language. You know, anybody that plays has a, a language. You know, you, you play certain things and you have a certain sound and stuff. And so at some point I, I thought, you know, I need to maybe I should try playing solo. Maybe that would be the most honest way to figure out like, okay, do I like this sound? And if I like that sound and that sound, how do I put those sounds together and how do I build up on that? So that was sort of the idea. And I, I, so I started doing these things and I started uh, totally ridiculous that I'd, you know, my first performance, I think outside of uh, playing like classical rep kind of things at college, I played at the Casbah, um, solo for like 45 minutes which was <laughs> think looking back on I'm like what was I doing you know like how did I have the the huevos to oh yeah I'm just gonna book this gig where I'm gonna play solo for that long but yeah for me it's been really uh really eye-opening because you know you do these things and then you figure out like okay like I do like things that move uh, you know rates of time I like things that move quickly I like um textures that shift kind of dramatically um do i like do you know everybody kind of has these different things you listen to a certain composer and you tell like okay that person seems to like certain sounds and you know often if we're dealing with pitches you're dealing with certain tonalities or different kind of harmonic ideas um and it's the same thing like okay do i want to what if i just did music all for triangles no, that's ridiculous. That didn't work at all. You know, what if I want to do like pieces just for like bass drums or something, you know, like registers, you start thinking. So it's kind of like a workshop in a lot of ways. Um, how do I put these things together? Where do I want to go with this? All these different ideas. Um, we were talking before, I, I just did a birthday concert. I've done these things over the years. You, you get to the point where you're trying to put on sort of experimental avant-garde percussion and there, it's pretty much impossible to get this booked in a club or in a coffee shop or something like that so I've always sought out like you know different venues for this I've done stuff on the side of the road in the mountains I've done performances in parking structures I've done all these different things so I kind of have this legacy of putting on concerts and sort of untraditional spaces cool so let's talk let's go back to talking about the Parker Meridian um, you guys put out an album recently, The Bully Pulpit. Was that, I can't remember, was that earlier this year? Was that late last year? I'm, I'm losing track of the timeline. November of last year. Yeah, just a few months ago. And was that the one that won the San Diego Music Award recently? Or no, was it was the previous. Before? We put out our first recording, which was some of the tracks that we had been doing live from his EP, and then some of the tracks that we had written ourselves. And then we did um, basically kind of a scaled-down kind of in the style of the 90s unplugged video you know where where you take these tracks and so in, in parker meridian normally when we play it's myself on drum set and i'm running samples john reader on electric bass parker edison on vocals and it's it's a pretty loud band uh you know we play clubs um and we started getting asked to do these uh, poetry readings and weird things like that, <laughs> which completely goes against what, not against, but I, it was a challenge to try and figure out how we do that. So we figured out this setup where John Reader was playing upright bass. Uh, I was playing basically hand drums 
and shakers. And then we asked our friend Sharon Taylor to come play cello. So she was covering some of the samples and the background vocals and all these things that we use normally in the music. And uh, so we were having, we did a, a couple gigs with that and um, we were, um, got to the, we did a 360 video with our friends um, and uh, posted that for the NPR tiny desktop thing. Um, and we decided, okay, maybe it'd be cool to record some of this because this sounds totally different, but it's some of the same music. So that record, uh, that was the one that won the music awards. Uh, it's called 35th Street Sessions. Nice. Okay. So do you have either with the Parker Meridian or any of your other projects, do you have things on the horizon, things that you're working on that are coming up that we could kind of watch out for? Yeah, I will. Uh, I mean, with ice, with this whole quarantine thing, I've been recording like crazy. So there's a few things that'll come out of this. The, the two main things I have a sort of longstanding duo is Stuart Liebig, the electric bass player from, uh, Los Angeles called Tokays and we have uh, our third release coming up. We we're supposed to do some shows in July and I don't think any of that's going to happen. We had something booked in Phoenix and something booked in Los Angeles. Hopefully that'll happen sometime this year, but that's coming up and that's a kind of interesting group. It's just bass and drums, but we're both do using electronics. It's sort of like a weird um like a very strange take on rhythm section playing because we're playing grooves, but then we're also using samples and bringing in loops and things like that. So that's super cool. I'm looking forward to that. I also have a duo uh, with the woodwind player, Keith Kelly from Phoenix uh, that got recorded, I believe two years ago and we finally got everything done. So those are the two things that'll be coming out this summer, both on my imprint, Castor and Pollux Music. And then I've been writing and recording. I have a whole... I've been trying to use this time as a way to do some collaborations with people maybe that I couldn't get in all in a room together. So I have a an octet record, which is four horns, bass, drums, two guitars. And uh, so right now it's um, Keith Kelly playing bass clarinet and tenor and flute from Phoenix. Michael Desson up in Irvine playing trombone. Jonathan Piper on tuba from San Diego. Um, myself playing. Um, I'm trying to get Carl Evangelista in the Bay Area to play guitar on it. So I've been. It's kind of an interesting thing. I'm, I make these demos and send them out to people and give them tempo grids and they send me back stuff and I'm mixing it together and editing it and then sending it back to them. Um, yeah, that's really cool. Of, it's kind of almost like a band that couldn't exist in any other time, but now because of this, definitely nobody has the time or like, and I definitely don't have the money to like fly all these people to San Diego to do you know four days of recording and a gig or something. So that's been super fun and and uh, just writing in general. Uh, my buddy Rafter, who I played with for years, has a new record and he sent me a bunch of tracks and just said, you know, play drums, whatever you think on any of these. So I sent him a bunch of stuff to mess around with and he's been mixing that and editing different things that he likes. Um, so yeah, just trying to keep busy. Uh, definitely have a few things planned. The performance thing, you know, it's hard. Every like, there's a lot of music out there, and there's a lot of people putting music out there. And I've always felt that live performance is really where it pushes. You really get that. You know, you can push that music. Parker Meridian made its reputation by doing a lot of performances and making that work. Everybody in San Diego saw us at least twice. Uh, we play a lot, and that's how we got 
um, our music over and got people to listen to it. So we're kind of in a challenging moment now where it's like, <laughs> we can't really like, <laughs> how am I supposed to go out and promote this and push this and stuff? So I'm, I'm trying to figure that out at this point. Uh, hopefully some of these restrictions ease up a little bit. Um, I, I don't really see much happening, honestly, this year. At this point, I'm just hoping my kids go back to school in the fall. Totally, yeah. Just get them out of the house. <laughs> get them out of the house. <laughs> yeah, it's tough, man. So, I mean, I can speak about Cuyamaca College specifically. You know, we have a concert series, um, and we had to cancel essentially half of it. Everything after yeah. uh, March 12th, I think, was our last event. In fact, it was a show I played with Rika Parker, who you and I have played with together before. But pretty much everything after that is is done. So, you know, I can't. I can't really help you out there either. I've I've got nothing to offer any performers either, which which kind of kills me. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I I literally have a I have a, a theater show booked for August, and I just got an email saying we're still going to try, and and uh, I mean I appreciate the I appreciate the sort of enthusiasm. I I, I don't see it happening. So we'll see. I I had two theater shows back to back that both got canceled um in in the last couple months so we'll see what happens um as this goes along you know it's it's shifting and people are opening up things and that could be good or that could be really bad and i'm hoping it's kind of in the middle uh and then we keep working on this but it's an interesting time that i don't think anybody's ever had to deal with so we're kind of making up this stuff as we go yeah, I know that all of us are kind of in that same situation. So I want to talk a little bit, just kind of more generally, uh, if you were to encounter somebody who was really young, just getting started in, yeah. in music making, and if they were to say to you, you know, hey, Nathan, can you give me some, can yeah. you give me some advice? Like, what, what could you offer somebody who is interested in the kind of work that you do, and they're, they're just getting started? What could, you, what could you give them as some advice, perhaps? I think, like in in any situations, it's about connections, um, both connecting to your music and and figuring out what you want to say, and then also uh, connecting with other people, uh, whether that's people that you want to play with, uh, and and seeking out those situations. Um, I mean, nobody's going to get any better or do anything just by sitting in their bedroom and. Clearly, there's a lot of people that make amazing music just sitting in their bedroom and never deal with anybody. But for me, it's always been meeting new people, challenging myself and doing that. Um, and also, like, regardless of, of work and these things, having a, um, some sort of plan or at least an idea of, of what you want to do and what you want to accomplish. Uh, I see a lot of people out there that just maybe don't have a, a firm... It doesn't doesn't seem like they're just kind of grasping at straws of what to do, and and I think having some sort of idea and some sort of push into, okay, I want to accomplish this in the next couple of years. I want to work towards this. Uh, I want to write this record. I want to have a record out. I want to be playing with these people. These kind of goals are are very important because otherwise you're just going to be stuck, you know, trying to figure out where it's going or relying on other people to help you figure those things out. Yeah, that's cool. I like that. Almost like you have clearly identifiable goalposts that you're that you're pointed toward. Yeah, definitely. And honestly, I, you know, 
not all of them work. Right. Yeah. There's plenty of times where that stuff doesn't work. But having something to work towards rather than just like just being know, aimless or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I, I see certain people where they they don't really have like anything they're working towards and and uh, they're kind of floundering a little bit. And uh, I don't know. I I maybe I just have too many ideas or you know I I'm. I'm the kind of the guy that has to like shoot down about maybe 60% of my ideas. So just to like, yeah, okay, that would be cool, but that's never going to happen. That's not going to work at all. So uh, that's kind of uh, my, uh, where I'm at, just trying to make things, uh, add some clarity to what I'm doing rather than just go with every ridiculous idea I come up with. That's awesome. I really like that. Thank you. Hey, well, thanks for being here, man. It's it's good to talk to you. Uh, I had a good time. Thanks for having me. This is super fun. Well, this is actually perfect because this recorder is just about to... Batteries are just about to die, so... And to close out today's episode, here's an excerpt of the song Walled Garden from one of Nathan's earliest albums, Encinitas and Everything After, Volume 1. 